to What the Fertility. Today we have Dr. Catherine Snow, reproductive endocrinologist with us today. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So could you just start out and kind of tell everybody um, a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and maybe the last like eight to 10 years of your life of how you got into reproductive endocrinology? Yes. Um, So I'm actually from Charlotte, North Carolina, where Amanda currently is. And I grew up there. My family's still there. And I um, went to UNC Chapel Hill for undergrad. And I had always had this inkling that I thought I would want to be a doctor, but I just sort of intermittently doubted myself along the way. It's a long road. And, you know, when you're young, you aren't sure what you want to do. So I toyed with it in undergrad. I ended up getting a master's in health administration after undergrad because I knew I loved healthcare and I wanted to be involved somehow, but I wasn't quite at the point where I thought I wanted to be a physician. But throughout that time, that was actually a really invaluable experience because it taught me a lot about how the system works and how it also doesn't work. And I think that having that sort of bird's eye view has helped me along the way. Throughout grad school, I continued to pursue the idea of medicine. So I went ahead and applied to medical school and I attended medical school in Richmond, Virginia at Virginia Commonwealth University. I fell in love with women's health. It was the you know only rotation that I felt like really called to me. And I knew I wanted to connect with my patients and feel like I really could understand what they were going through. So I continued my OBGYN um, journey in residency in New York at Mount Sinai, which is on the upper east, upper east side of Manhattan. And that was definitely a whirlwind of time. But from there, um, we typically would shadow an, a practice called RMA, which is in Midtown Manhattan, and they're very busy. And it was my first experience seeing infertility patients. And it was such an experience. I think it's kind of amazing when you first start to see that world. I'm sure as a patient too, it's just all so new. And even from the medical side of it, it's very new. You don't really see it until you really experience it. So that got me interested in REI. I went ahead and did my fellowship at Duke, came back down South. And from there, I've been practicing at Prague since August and it's been amazing. That's awesome. I love how you said that, you know, you don't really see the infertility patients until you see them. I think from like Amanda and I's perspective, OB, and we're like, Hey, we've had two or three miscarriages or Hey, we're not getting pregnant. They also just look back at you like blank face. And they're like, we're in the business of like caring for the baby. I have no idea how to help you get pregnant. Right. And it's funny. I mean, it is interesting how that works. I, I do think at Duke, I felt like the residents had much more exposure to our practice than a lot of other places, but still it's such a small, small part of your education and training, even as an OBGYN resident. So it's really important that you get extra training in it. And it certainly equips you to learn the ropes and deal with the the problems that you see. Absolutely. Well, I know I'm super thankful for Ari's and um, for you, you know, getting into that. I have my master's of health administration. So I thought that was super interesting that you went through a couple years of that and then switched to med school. 
So I guess we'll kind of just jump right in. Um, probably what everyone listening is curious um, from your standpoint, what would you suggest um, for women, you know, trying to conceive, let's say they've just kind of started trying to conceive at what point do you suggest, Hey, somebody needs to, you need to come and see a reproductive endocrinologist or seek further treatment than maybe just your OB. I think that's a great question. So there's two answers. One is going to be the textbook answer and the other is going to be the real life answer. So the textbook answer will tell you that if you're under 35 years old and you've been attempting to conceive for a year, then you need to seek, you know, further treatment for infertility, either bring it up with your OB and have them refer you, or just go ahead and self-refer yourself to an REI. If you're over 35, given that the fertility window starts to narrow as we get older, that time frame is shortened to six months. So those are the textbook answers under 35, one year, over 35, six months. Now, that being said, if you know you have an issue, then don't wait those times. It's kind of pointless, right? So I had a patient the other day who's 23 and she hasn't had a period in a year, you know? So she knows something's off. They've only been trying for a couple of months, but she knows, Hey, I'm not, I'm not regular. I wanted to go ahead and head this off at the pass. So I think those types of decisions are so helpful because nothing is more frustrating for both of us, right? For a patient or a physician when they're already felt like they've wasted so much of their time. And then it, it makes the journey harder, I think, because you've sort of given yourself maybe one to two years of trying or trying to figure it out. And then by the time you get to the door, you know, the fertility journey is, is definitely a marathon, not a sprint. Right. And so, yeah. And so it's, it's even harder when that road has already been traveled for a long time. And I think there are so many reasons as to why that happens. People just keep hoping it's going to change. And, and we've, you know, we've all understand that, but it does make it harder because time time is important. And that's part of why egg freezing is such a big deal because we just, as women, we don't have that time. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait to get into the egg freezing and preservation. One of the things, and that before we kind of move on that, I love that you said that I think a lot of people don't know, at least when I communicate that with them is self-referring yourself to an RE. A lot of people are like, Yeah. So a lot of people are like, oh, I had to have three miscarriages before I went or, oh, I had to to do this, but I definitely self-referred myself. Um, So I'm really glad you pointed that out. That was a, it's a really important piece. Yeah. You don't, you don't need this formal referral. What'd you say, Amanda? That pretty standard for all clinics that you, I think think so. Yeah. I, I have a good number of patients who aren't referred at all. And I think that's great. I like, I think in a lot of areas of medicine, that's not how it works. So I understand that people don't realize that you have to kind of, you can just bypass that, but yeah, everybody has a tolerance for things. That's a little different in the fertility world. Like you said, Catherine, the three miscarriages is sometimes other providers benchmark. Right. And it's like, for us, I I'll see somebody after one miscarriage, if you know, if it's very concerning and they're, they want to just check all the boxes and make sure they're okay. I think that's completely legitimate. 
Yeah, absolutely. No, that's great. Especially because you always think you have to get the referral first. Like I know right. I totally did not know that. And I thought I had to go through my OB first and kind of go that route, wait the year. We waited over a year before we had a miscarriage during that time and mm. wait, and then I was referred, but wow, that's awesome to know. And I'm sure so many listeners are going to be so excited to know that as well. Yeah. Just, just come on in. You just call the front desk and if there's a problem, they normally are, you know, staff will normally let us know they'll, they'll send us an email or they're asked, they'll ask us like, Hey, do you see patients with X, Y, Z? So even if they aren't sure, they normally will kind of escalate it to one of the providers. Yeah. So great. Okay. Mm -hmm. So say I was a new client and we are coming in for the first time, kind of what, can you walk us through what that looks like just as a first visit? Um, yeah, it can be very daunting coming in with something, um, just so emotional and it's such a vulnerable thing going through infertility as well. So definitely. And I I think totally. And I think, you know, what I like about our practice, I think that we have a lot of compassion for that, but, um, a lot of times couples come in and they are just so nervous Mm -hmm. that you can just feel it, you know, and they're just so nervous to be there. They're nervous about what you're going to say. They're nervous to talk about sex or their miscarriage or sperm, you know, reproduction in general can be kind of a touchy topic for people. But when you come into our office, if you're seeing me or Dr. Tarnawa, we're just going to have a conversation. Okay. So I, I always, I always try to start by just saying like, we're just going to talk. That's all we're going to do today. Um, and I start by trying to have the patient tell me kind of why they're there. I obviously know that you want to have a baby, but I want to know about the journey a little bit. And in some cases you can fill out your portal online. We have access to a patient portal. So some people will pre-fill their story a little bit, but even if they do, I I just want to hear you talk about it. So we will want to talk about kind of what your journey has been to up to this point what your menstrual cycles are like. We take a full gynecologic history, obstetric history, medical history, surgical history, go through the whole gamut, allergies. What do you do for work? Do you drink a lot? Do you smoke, et cetera? All those things. We also talk about family history, especially breast cancer, ovarian cancer. I just, if you have a strong family history of that, I sometimes recommend people to get tested for BRCA. So these are all things that we start to delve into, into a visit. The other thing we do, which I think surprises some patients is we, we talk about their partner. So if you're in a heterosexual relationship, I'm going to bring up the male partner. I want to know what his health is like. Does he have children from a prior relationship? You know, has he ever had a sperm tested? Does he take testosterone? You know, these are things that can affect fertility and we got to go there. You know, um, if you're in a same sex relationship, I still want to know, we're going to just talk about the general health of both partners. No, that's great. And I know, especially because I feel like once you get there, I know for us, my husband and I, when we first got there, we had no idea what to expect. And so it's great that just having that conversation and just feeling like, you know, it's not just immediate a diagnosis or immediate telling us that we're infertile or, you know, just having the conversation and getting to know each other too, I feel like is so important. I totally agree. And I think that it goes both ways. Like, I want to get to know you, right? And you want to get to know me, but we both want to feel comfortable, right? Yeah. It's, it's not just a, I definitely want the patient to feel comfortable with me, but I also want to feel comfortable. I want to know, like, are you, you know, 
are there concerns or do you feel, I think one other thing that I've started to really make sure I do at the beginning of a visit or maybe the first couple visits is just sort of assess where couples want to go with things. Because some people kind of also feel nervous that when they come to the office, we're just going to make them do IVF. Mm -hmm. I've had that happen a couple of times and it's always surprised me because I don't know where that comes from. Uh, You know, maybe a past experience or who knows reading, you know, stuff on the internet or their friends experiences. But so I sometimes just want to know if there's any hard stops, like maybe religious objections to fertility treatment or you know, of course, finances come into it. Maybe they just won't at all consider it. And, and those are fine. It's fine. That's fine. I just want to know, you know, it just sort of state gives us some, some boundaries to work within. Yeah. I think that's such a good point. A lot of people relate like RE and a fertility clinic to IUI and IVF, but there's so much out there. And I mean, just my own personal experience and friends that have had experiences, some people do IVF and then they knock it down a bit and they say, okay, let's do medicated cycles. And, um, I definitely want to get into that in a little bit. One of, so we had, uh, all of our followers on Instagram submit Q and A's for you. I will say out of our first four guests, you've had the most, (laughs) everybody's (laughs) like, oh, we got a doctor on let's go free advice. Um, so this one's, this one's this one's kind of funny, but, um, it goes into what you were just visit. And I know we brought up the sperm analysis. So typically the first visit, or at least how it's been for me for two of the clinics that I've been a patient at is the husband comes along Mm -hmm. and the one and only thing they have to do is the semen analysis. Um, so one of the questions from the audience, and I don't know if I fully understand this, but maybe we could just go into it is, um, if a, if a semen analysis comes back above average, can it still affect the quality of the embryo? So let's talk about sperm for a second. <clears throat> so in general, yes, the male partner, his job is to provide a semen analysis. So you really can't move forward with any, at least medicated treatment without at least seeing what the sperm looks like. In men, unlike women, they regenerate their sperm every 72 days. So women were unlucky. Okay. We're born with all the eggs we're ever going to have, and we can't do anything about it. We can't make more. We can try to make them better with all of our supplements. But at the end of the day, they're essentially what we got. They've hung around for as long as we've lived and we can't change that. Men are different they have a chance to regenerate their sperm. And this is good for them because their sperm can also be severely affected by things. For example, they get sick, they get an illness that can really wipe down their sperm, medications that they're on, um, testosterone or steroid use. These things also wipe out sperm, which unfortunately, sometimes these guys like aren't told that when they are given these treatments. So a lot of times with sperm, if it is an abnormal result, we do the simplest thing, which is just to repeat it because we can say, maybe that was just catching the sperm at a window of time where they're on the regenerative kind of slope upward. So let's just try again in a month or so. I have seen sperm samples where the concentration is so um, high that it there's concern for it to be viscous or something like that. 
that's really only important when we're talking about an IUI where you just don't want to let that sperm sit for too long. I have not heard that affecting embryo quality. That's really interesting. I I'm so glad you went into detail because I, you know, I don't know. You always want to think right. that it's 50, 50 partner you, what could it be? And especially in cases like mine where it's unexplained, right? Yes. Like, can the, can the semen have something to do with it? I'm testing normal. They're testing normal. So thanks for really going into that. Um, our next question still in line with the very first visit is that AMH blood draw, the LH blood draw, and I think the FSH. And if you want to kind of, you know, more than I do, the other original, like that first visit, what do those really tell you? So you get everything back after the first visit in terms of just the standard protocol. What does that tell you about a patient? AMH is one of my favorite topics. So I think this is super important. One of the first things, so the first visit, we're going to come up with a plan and the general plan typically involves getting a semen analysis for the male partner, if there is a male partner, and then doing an ultrasound for the female partner to assess her uterus and ovaries. At an ultrasound, you can do something called an antral follicle count or AFC. What that means is we can look at both of the ovaries and see sort of what the potential to make eggs looks like on those ovaries. Remember that eggs are microscopic, so you cannot see an egg on an ultrasound. You can only see eggs with a high powered microscope. So at the time of a retrieval, we can see them when we take out the fluid from the ovary. When we're doing IUIs and things like that, and of course with IVF monitoring, we're using ultrasound to help us because we're watching those follicles grow and we're watching the blood levels grow as well. So these levels of, of blood tests are important. So an AMH is called an anti-malarian hormone. What this has been used for, it tells us sort of a measure of your ovarian reserve or your ovarian potential. It does not, very importantly, does not tell us how likely you are to conceive. Okay. So it only tells us your potential when we're doing any type of ovarian stimulation but you can have one little egg left and still have a baby with that egg. Okay. So it shouldn't make you panic if you have a lower AMH and you're trying to have a baby, but it also shouldn't falsely reassure you if you have a higher AMH and you're 47 years old, that's not going to, you can have all those eggs that you want and they're going to be bad quality. Okay. So that's kind of what AMH tells us. And I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of home tests and a lot of things that are being done these days where AMH is sort of being pushed on young women, like check your eggs test, see how, how your eggs are. And it's, again, it's fine. It's a measure of your reserve, but it doesn't tell us that you can't have a baby. It only tells us about how many eggs we could get if we were going to do IVF or something like that. Now that's great to know, because I know so many people put so much pressure on AMH. I know I did for sure. Right. It was really low. And though it didn't, you know, work out of having a baby on our own. Right. uh, It's still, though, is really encouraging to just know that because I feel like once we get those numbers back, we automatically are thinking like, oh, nope, we can't have a baby on our own. Right. And that, that is not true at all. Um, there was a study done by one of my former mentors at Duke. It's called the time to conceive study. And she's a big AMH researcher. Okay. 
And what she did was she took non-infertile women and their partners who were actively trying to conceive for 12 months. And she broke them down into AMH categories, low, medium, and high. And she assessed between the three groups, you know, their likelihood of conceiving. And they all had about the same chance of conceiving in a 12 month period. So it didn't matter if they had the highest AMH or the lowest AMH, they all essentially were able to conceive at the same percentage over time. Okay. So again, it's, it's not a measure of your ability to have a baby in non-infertile women. So of course, when we're talking about patients who come to the fertility center, you're using it as a tool to assess how you can respond. Okay. But if you're just trying on your own and there are no issues, it's really not necessary to get. Um, an estrogen, an FSH, which is a follicle stimulating hormone and an LH is a luteinizing hormone. These are hormones that we call the day three labs. Okay. So we'll be like, tell us when you get your period, call us. And when you come in for that ultrasound, we're going to draw all these labs. So in a menstrual cycle, your hormones fluctuate. So they go up and down. Progesterone predominates like the second half of the cycle. Estrogen and FSH predominate the first half of the cycle. And the luteinizing hormone is important because it's the one that shoots up when you're about to ovulate. So those ovulation predictor kits, those work in conjunction with LH, the luteinizing hormone. So they try to catch your surge, right? So that's what the surge is, is that LH going, whoop, let's really see it. So FSH is really important in our world because as we get older, and even if we're not physically older, if our body's acting older, that number starts to shoot up. So it gives us a sense of how hard your body's working to make an egg in a month. And that's important because when you're trying to give women hormones and IVF or something like that, if they're already seeing this high level of FSH at baseline, it might make you think, okay, this patient may not respond that great to these hormones because she's already working so hard to see, to make eggs that when we're trying to give her this exogenous FSH, it just may not be as effective for her. So some clinics have FSH cutoffs of where they won't proceed with treatment, but it is a measure of kind of your ovarian reserve in a way, because it tells us how hard your body's working to do its natural process. That's so interesting. I did not realize um, that there could be like a cutoff. That's so interesting. It's not something that they'll necessarily say, and some people have their own little cutoffs in their head, you know, it's not a hard and fast rule, but if you see an FSH in the twenties, that's going to make you concerned Mm -hmm. like, okay. And we're talking at the very beginning of the cycle, not in the middle of the cycle, but it does tell you that, okay, there's some signs of ovarian aging, even in a young woman. Yeah. Wow. Um, I do have a question about, I know we're talking about IVF and then we, Catherine mentioned a little bit about a medicated cycle. Um, Mm -hmm. What other kind of treatments would you suggest? I know you guys talked about, we don't always go right to IVF, but what other things um, could a couple possibly go through? Absolutely. So it definitely depends on the couple, right? So I think in women and men who have unexplained infertility, there are more options than in a couple that has male factor infertility. So their sperm is really not going to get them a baby, you know, or if they have tubal factor where their tubes are closed. So let's talk about 
just let's say a couple that's very common who's nothing's really signaling anything's wrong when we do all the female stuff and nothing really looks bad on the male stuff. So that's what we call unexplained infertility, where that's affecting about 30% of people who come into our office. And that's a really frustrating diagnosis because I think a lot of times people want to find something wrong. And sometimes there isn't anything wrong, technically, you know, at, at the end of the day. So in those couples, that's where I really like to assess if they have any hard stops, because if they do, if they do, then I start with where they're comfortable starting. But in couples with unexplained infertility, the textbook answer would be to say, okay, let's start you on Clomid, which is a medication that basically tells your body that it needs help making an egg. So it shuts down the hormones from your brain and says, oh, it needs help. Let's, let's get those ovaries going. So it, it makes your body make an egg. Sometimes it'll make maybe two eggs, two follicles. So you do have a, a risk of multiple pregnancy that's around five to 10% is what we normally say. So we basically call that super ovulation when you're ovulating more than one egg, but hopefully not five, six, seven, because we don't want octomom happening. That's not good. We then typically combine that with a trigger shot called Ovidrill that forces the egg out. And the reason that's helpful is that we often will want to add on what we call an intrauterine insemination, where we take the male sperm and we put it through what I like to say, the sperm Olympics. we get only the best and strongest sperm, only the moving sperm, only the good stuff. And we put that sperm directly into the uterus of the female partner. And that's helpful because A, you're releasing an egg, maybe two. B, we know you're releasing it because we gave you a shot that's going to force it out. And then C, we know that the sperm's in the right place at the right time and it's the best sperm and it's bypassing the natural barriers of the vagina and the cervix. Even doing all of that, your chance of success in a cycle like that is upwards of 20%. And some would say that's a generous percentage. In couples who don't have unexplained infertility, like people who we never meet, who just get pregnant on their own, lucky them, right? They have about a 20% per month chance. So we know that statistically in couples with unexplained infertility, they don't really have that baseline percentage because if they did, they would have gotten pregnant by now, you know? So we're helping get them back to baseline with these treatments. Now, I'm, I'm giving you kind of the textbook answer of doing Clomid IUIs, right? Of course, there's variations to this. People will want to do Clomid without IUIs. I tell them they can, as long as there's not a sperm issue. I just tell them that the evidence doesn't point to that being as successful as the inseminations. But I do think in this process, a lot of times people need to kind of graduate treatment, you know, they gradually kind of add on things, Catherine, and you mentioned before, it's not always a slam dunk. I'm ready to go. It's oftentimes kind of get your toes wet first before you are swimming in the deep end of the swimming pool. Right. So you just got to take people where they are and how they want to start. That's a really good answer. Um, in terms of, and I feel like we started at the beginning and now I'm going off the deep end, um, <laughs> in terms of like sperm donation, egg donation, double mm -hmm. donors, at what point, and I know it's going to be different for every single individual, 
really, I guess, what are some key characteristics when you go and say, hey, maybe you want to consider doing donor eggs, donor sperm, double donor, um, or even um, embryo adoption. And, and that's actually what Amanda did and just had her son. Um, so Congratulations. Point, thank you. Yes, he is so sweet. And we're so thankful for embryo adoption. When did you deliver? Uh, a month ago. Wow. Congrats. One month old. Wow. Are you getting any sleep? Oh, last night was real rough. For us. <laughs> <laughs> I was telling Catherine earlier today, I was like, yeah, so I got no sleep last night. This might be a rough call. <laughs> it's fine. I think that's a really hard question, Catherine. Um, it's always touchy because, and I also think, and Amanda, you can speak to this too. I think that <clears throat> that process is not something people often come into the office thinking that that's where they're going to end up, right? I don't really think most people think that unless they know from the get-go there's a clear issue, right? Like if you're over 44 or there's no sperm and there's no way you can do IVF or anything. So there are definitely certain times where it's an avenue that's directed by the couple and they know it and it's not a conversation that is difficult. But I think in general, I don't have a hard and fast number of, of cycles or, or experiences that I make someone go through before we talk about it. I think it's always something you should discuss whenever you have a failed cycle and you're not sure that there's going to be a different outcome with another cycle, right? So any woman who's over 40, it's going to be harder, period. You should always make sure they know the option of donor egg, but it's also very reasonable if they're not ready to go down that road yet and want to do another cycle or two before they feel like that's where they want to be. Conversely, I have patients who are like, I only have this much money to allocate toward IVF donor, having our child period. What's my best option. Right. And you kind of put together what's going on on the male side, female side, whatever. And then you go from there. It just really depends on what the issues are and what the patient wants to do. I think that's where limits come in. Typically, if I had a patient who was willing to go through, you know, however many cycles it took, but they just kept having bad outcome after bad outcome, like no embryo development, et cetera. I would probably give them three. And then, cause you know, at, at some point you're doing someone harm, right? Like at some point, even if they have all the money in the world and all the time to do it, you've got to set a boundary. That's where we were at. Yeah. And it just, we just kept getting abnormal embryos. Every single one was up, came back up normal. And so my doctor basically said the same thing was like, we're at a point where we can keep trying and you know, there is that one chance that that embryo will come back normal. Um, but it's looking like the, just from past, you know, cycles that everything is coming back up normal that, you know, here's another option for you. And that's where yeah. we the embryo adoption into play. And I think the embryo adoption is going to become more popular because, you know, it's expensive. If you want to even choose an egg donor or a sperm donor, you're still going to go through the IVF process, you know? So it's not, it's still expensive. Mm -hmm. So 
I do think if couples are open to it, it's a great alternative. Of course, you're carrying the pregnancy too. So we do think that there is absolutely influence from carrying the pregnancy. Absolutely. So it's not like there is no genetic kind of fingerprint on that child from you. But I always say, I'm always like, you're the one changing the diaper at 3 a.m. You know, <laughs> like, what makes you more of a parent than that? <laughs> so, yeah. But it's hard. It's always a hard conversation, I think. It's always hard. Yeah. I think all of it's hard, right? <laughs> from even just going to that first visit. Um, so, I think from reading your bio and the little bit I know about you, egg preservation and egg freezing is one of your special interests. Um, I think that topics just ramp up getting talked about, Mm -hmm. um, amongst like more so publicly amongst like mid 30 year olds. Um, I know I have family members that either just got out of a really long-term relationship and they're like 34 years old and they're like, Oh my gosh, should I freeze my eggs? So can you speak on that from your experience with, you know, egg freezing and egg preservation? I think egg freezing is so interesting. And I think part of the reason I think it's interesting is because I spent the last 10 years of my life in school. Right. And I wasn't planning on starting my family. It wasn't even something I was thinking about. Um, and so I think a lot of women are now doing that we're putting off and it's not just my opinion, actually it's documented in literature and studies. And we know based on the CDC data that women are having children later. So the trend used to be 20s. Now it's in the 30s, even later 30s, that women are choosing to start their families. And there's a lot of reasons for this. Um, financial reasons, we're going to school, we have jobs that are important to us. We want to feel very stable before we start building our families. Egg freezing allows us to essentially stop our ovaries from aging for a second because we're going to take out the eggs at whatever age you go through the process. So it's the only way we can freeze time is if you freeze your eggs, you know, today, because we're only going to get older tomorrow. Right. So as I mentioned before, women are born with all the eggs we're ever going to have. So we can't make things better. And that sucks. I'm sure one day they'll come up with something, but for now, this is what we got. Okay. So I think your um, example was a good one. And this is a lot of what I've seen. And I do think it's becoming much more common that companies are starting to pay for egg freezing, but you know, mid thirties change relationships, don't have a new relationship on the horizon. Um, These are examples of women who choose to do this. Conversely, mid thirties don't have a relationship. My job will pay for it. Mine as well. You know, I think it's great. I even had a married patient go through egg freezing and she was like, this is just something I've always wanted to do. Um, we're about to travel overseas and you know, her company would pay for it. And these benefits are being extended to women. And I think that's fantastic, but we need to remember, unfortunately, that the data on egg freezing is limited because a lot of women freeze their eggs and don't use them. And they don't use them for a variety of reasons. Maybe they find someone and they get pregnant on their own, right? Or they just choose not to use them. 
or they find someone and choose to move forward with IVF, right, at that time. So there's all sorts of iterations as to how this could go. And we have limited data on how eggs do, but the data we have is very reassuring. So the data we have on the cycles of eggs that are thawed and then used later to make a baby seem to be equivalent to the data we have for fresh IVF with ICSI. So remember, if anyone isn't sure of this, when we talk about freezing your eggs, we are talking about going through IVF. Okay. We're just stopping at the point where we get your eggs. We don't, you know, fertilize them with sperm. We don't do any of that. We don't make embryos. They're just frozen at the egg, egg stage. And another thing to remember is that we can only freeze what we call mature eggs. So, you know, you could get 30 eggs, but once our embryologist, and that's a specialist who works with the eggs and sperm, once he or she looks under the microscope and says, oh, only like 20 of these are mature. Those are going to be the ones that are frozen because only the mature eggs are the ones that can ultimately be fertilized with sperm down the road. So another thing that needs mentioning is that, you know, freezing your eggs is only as good as a, your egg, your age at the time you freeze and B the number of eggs we get, right? Cause the last thing I want someone to feel is falsely reassured, right? Cause that's what it can also do. Um, is if, you know, you're 40 years old and you freeze three eggs, that would be you know, falsely reassuring someone that they're definitely going to get a baby from those three eggs. So you need to sit with somebody and say, okay, at your age, and there's all sorts of calculators online that we use and ways to kind of counsel people. But at your age, you would need X number to have this percentage chance of having a baby. And that needs to be a percentage that people feel good about. And if they don't, sometimes they go through multiple cycles of egg freezing. So sometimes it's not one and done, you know? But it's also just trying to make sure that there's that reliable chance that you're actually banking on, as opposed to just going through something that's not going to get you anything at the end of the day. No, absolutely. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, so this was our favorite Q&A from Instagram, and I'm going to lead it with a question. But pretty much anytime someone walks in and they're going to do IUI, IVF, medicated cycle, we all of a sudden want to get really healthy. We're like, we're going to change our exercise. We're going to change our diet. Um, they do a ton of lifestyle changes. And this was the best question. It says, what do doctors think of pomegranate juice, Brazil nuts, and pineapple core? Cool things. I think if you want to use them, fine. Great. For me, the biggest things are to be healthy. Right. And I, I mean that like, not as a joke, like obviously being at a healthy weight is important as important, as healthy as you can get. I know that, you know, if you're a size 20, you're not going to go to a size two tomorrow. And I, I'm not expecting that, but I do think if you can maintain a healthy BMI exercise moderately, you don't need to be a um, CrossFit junkie cutting down on alcohol, cutting back on too much caffeine no smoking. These are kind of obvious lifestyle things. Maybe, maybe to people who are listening, but maybe not, you know, um, supplements are not pointless, but they should only be undertaken. If those first things that I mentioned 
are doing, you're doing great on those things, right? Like if you're smoking a pack a day, you can eat or drink all the pine, pineapple core you want, and it's, it's not going to help you. Right. So I don't think that any supplement is a magic bullet, but I'm certainly not opposed to people choosing to use them. Um, my only caveats are the male supplements sometimes have, you've got to be careful about some of these male supplements, especially if there are anything about bodybuilding or weightlifting, because sometimes they can have testosterone in them. And those that can really affect sperm. It can totally wipe it out. And women supplements that I typically recommend to people are CoQ10 because that ha- there is some pretty good data on CoQ10. So taking CoQ10 twice a day, I try to get someone to take up to 600 milligrams. That has been shown to help with kind of say cellular aging, egg quality, if you will, that kind of thing. Melatonin's also been shown to help. I don't take melatonin because it makes me wake up at 2 a.m. every time I take it. But if you can take it, great. <laughs> if you can't take it, it's fine. You know, so I only, I think that they're fine. I'm not against supplements. I just am against people thinking that they're going to do something they're not, or being so stressed out that they're taking 35 supplements. I did have a patient bring a bag of, I mean, it was probably 10 pounds. It was so heavy and she has to time all these things. And it was so stressful. And I don't want that, you know, that's not worth it. So within reason. No. Yeah. I was just going to say, I totally relate to that because I was that girl. As soon as we found, we got our diagnosis and everything, <laughs> I read all the books, got yeah. all the supplements started, you know, gluten-free dairy-free. I was doing everything. So it is, it's kind of a double like edged sword because, you know, you want to try and do everything possible, of course. but you also don't want to get stressed out because, you know, then stress is not good for you either. So, I mean, it's like both sides to it. I I want someone to be able to live their life and not hate themselves. And I just think fertility is such a like crap journey. You're already going to be feeling so bad. The last thing I want to do is take like your one dessert away from you. (laughs) You know, I appreciate that. If I I thought it was going to really help you, I would tell you. Yeah. Right. And I do check a hemoglobin A1C. I mean, if your sugar's high, I'm going to talk to you about that stuff. Right. I'm not going to let you you know, eat a well, a Publix cheat cake every day. Like that's not the point. The point is to have a well-balanced diet. You don't need to cut out any macronutrient cutting out gluten. If you want to, if that makes you feel better, go for it. But there isn't anything that I have seen that makes any one particular diet better. Mm-hmm. Um, I think just being generally as healthy as you can. And now it's, and you brought up stress too, which I think I get asked about almost every day. I think stress is inherent to our lives, right? Sure. And whatever we can do to mitigate our stress is best, right? If, if going on Instagram and seeing everyone's Christmas photos stresses you out, God, delete it, right? Just get, yep. get your mind healthy as best you can. But at the end of the day, things that stress people out and in general, infertility is stressful. So that's just going to be there. Mm-hmm. Like if your job's stressing you out or your family, I mean, you can't really change those. Most people can't significantly modify their stressors. So I don't want to add stress to them by saying that they need to be less stressed, right? Because they can't change it, right? A lot of times you can't change it. You can only just sleep as much as you can, eat a well-balanced diet, try not to put yourself in stressful situations. And I always tell people, I'm like, you know, if you think about humans, we lived through the caveman era where we were being chased by animals all the time. And 
they still conceived, right? So we're at some point supposed to continue in times of stress, right? Because otherwise we wouldn't have made it this far. <laughs> yeah. So there is some just kind of logic to it, right? That you just have to accept that we are still supposed to continue on in times of stress. Yeah. Uh, well, that's a great advice. Um, but just to kind of close this out, um, is there any other words of advice that you would kind of give to a couple who's just starting out or just be walking, you know, through this journey of infertility? I think my biggest thing is if I could tell anybody one piece of advice, it would be to not wait too long. If it seems wrong or it seems like something's not working, or you have an inkling that something could be going on, just make an appointment. Yeah. Because the last thing you want is for years to go by and then you're coming to the plate too late. Right. Mm -hmm. So even if it's silly, even if you think it's silly, it's probably not, but even if it's just to get checked out, that's completely fine. It's totally within reason. And we're always here to see you. That's so great. I love that. Thank you so much. Oh, Dr. you're welcome. Oh, you. Super informative. I feel like I'm going to listen to the whole podcast again and take notes. <laughs> you probably know all the answers by now, but no, no I love it. Of that stuff, some of that stuff was new to me. So I really appreciate it. Um, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it was such a pleasure. And thanks for having me anytime I'll be here. So happy to have you.